Rayshard Brooks. Rayshard Brooks. He matters. He mattered to God. We grieve with the families. We grieve with the, the city in Atlanta right now that is suffering under the weight of another black man killed. And as we as a church figure out what to do, we put together this series <laughs> really after George Floyd happened and now another black man has been shot and killed. And so we're in the midst of this <clears throat> and it is worth noting that even saying black lives matter for many people is something you have to litigate. They're not even at the place where they can say black lives matter because they're concerned about what they will look like. But the fact of the matter is, is that this country doesn't just have a race problem. This country has been racist at its core since 1619. There is not a small problem. There is a systemic problem. And until the church can agree upon that fact, we will never see long-term change. Tonight, we're gonna to close out the series the stories we tell, and in closing it out, what we wanna do is we wanna be able to give just kind of a broader view of why our country persists to be racist. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith wrote a book called Divided by Faith. I really encourage you get a chance to read it for yourself. And in this book, he breaks down why we have this cultural and spiritual divide amongst white people and black people. And he essentially says that white evangelicals in particular have a toolkit that they operate from, a cultural toolkit. He says it's three-pronged. Essentially what he says is that um, white evangelicals believe that uh, we must have accountable individualism. And basically what he says is individuals exist independent of structures and institutions, have free will, and are individually accountable for their own actions. He says, secondly, relationalism, a strong emphasis on interpersonal relationships. And then thirdly, anti-structuralism, invoking social structures, structures uh, shifts guilt away from its root source, the accountable individual. So amongst individual accountability, essentially, and there you have anti-structuralism and uh, relationalism. Basically, you have an emphasis on personal relationships, but an ignorance towards racist structures. And these are the toolkits that white evangelicals operate with. Now, why am I bringing up white evangelicals in a conversation about race as at the heartbeat of what I'm saying? It is because the white church didn't just ignore racism in this country. They were at the heartbeat of it. They were at the tip of the spear. And there are doctrinal issues and theological issues and discipleship issues that cause the white evangelical church to be ill-equipped in this moment. I, I met with a group of pastors the other day and they, 
I said, you know, pastor, we saw the other day you were talking about, you know, you're tired of explaining this. Uh, just uh, can you explain what that means? So I was like, okay, well, do you remember you were in school and you studied for the test and, you know, you get there and you, you know, you, you take in the test and uh, right before you get in there, uh, your boy comes up to you and goes, yo, man, I, I didn't study. I didn't even know we had a test. Yo, can you help me out? And you go, okay, cool, man. You know, so you help him out. You tell him what's on the test, you know, okay, so you want to answer this and you got to remember that. You show him your notes, you know. Then it happens again, and you're just like, oh, come on, man. All right, let me show you my notes. And after the third or fourth time, you look over at your friend and you're like, are you ever going to study for yourself? Like, you always looking on my stuff. Why don't you ever study on your own? And that's what it feels like as an African-American when you get brought into white evangelical churches and you're saying, hey, can you, hey, we want to just listen. I mean, how many listening sessions do you need before you have reading sessions, before you start reading on your own and studying the issues of black and brown history in this country and being able to name? You, there, there needs to be a ceasing of listening and starting to read and have conversations. And that is the only way that our country will heal. It is at the point that we will have racial repentance, not just racial reconciliation, but repentance. When, when there's a deep dive into the soul, why, why is it hard to say black lives matter? You just don't want to be considered liberal? Or is it because there's something about that word black? Think about it when the Christian rapper <clears throat> Lecrae uh, posted on July 4th, I think it was 19, I mean, um, 2017, he posted about what his family was doing on the 4th of July of 1776. And he said, my family was picking cotton. He showed a picture of people picking cotton. And the, his Twitter feed went on fire. How dare you? You, you, you know, you're racist. How could you put that up there? And all he said was, on this date you celebrate, this is exactly what my ancestors were doing. Why is it? Every culture can remember the horrors their family went through except black people. Why, why can't we say that we have things in our past that we want to bring up? Why can't we talk about the trauma in our community? Why, why do we have to litigate black lives mattering? The comedian Michael Che, he, he, he made a great point. He said, you know, it's, a, it's interesting when a culture fi figures out what we must never forget. Because September 11th, we say we will never forget. But he, he said, uh, uh, humorously, he said, well, on September 11th, I'm gonna wear a shirt that says all buildings matter, right? And his point is, we're trying to remember the degradation, the pain, and the terrorism that happened to a group of people. And the problem is when black people bring up what happened in our, our community, it is a signaling that, that it's too far in the past and it really wasn't that bad. And so <clears throat> uh, in this message, what I want to do is I want to get to the root of that. I want to get to the root of how our society has been shaped historically. And I want to, my, my end game is this. We must stop thinking about racism as a historical issue. It is a spiritual issue. And racism is demonic to the core. And until we can begin to name it spiritually, we can't repent accurately. You see, until you name something as a sin, you can't, it's not, you know, when you, when you say, I just got a bad habit, that's different than saying, I got sin patterns. 
You see, you cannot repent accurately until you name sin. And so we have to be able to unfold what this country has been through and who we are. In 1619, between 1619 and 1660, America was a very interesting place because what you had was poor people and rich people, like many societies. And in this poor, rich society, basically what you had was indentured servitude for those that could not pay their own way. An indentured servant would probably serve for about seven years. And in so doing, they would be essentially a slave. That is essentially what you see in the New Testament, the kind of slavery you see. It's financial indebtedness. But, and over that time, people lived their lives. There were, there were black people here and white people and Italians and Germans and people loved each other and hated each other and were angry at each other. There was, it was a normal society like anybody else. There were black folks that got married during that time. Uh, I believe the first black couple's name was Isabella and Anthony. And so you had a normal society of rich and poor. But later on, as, the time, as time went on, um, black folks became the target of a caste system. And essentially what would happen, many, many, <clears throat> many historians um, try to target the range at which when indentured servitude went to becoming slavery. One author said basically that many, many indentured servants would want to run away and not fulfill their seven-year commitment. But when they would run away, the African ones were the most identifiable. While the Italians and Germans could blend into the community, the African ones were easily seen. Thus, you got the black ones by, by the way you see them. And then you began to meld into this one idea called whiteness in order to avoid being seen as those dark indentured servants and those dark slaves. So eventually, by 1702, Slavery became a lifestyle. Slavery was the way in which our culture operated. And because that was the way that we started to operate as a permanent way of life, you have to understand whenever there's a lifestyle, whenever there's a way that we live, it doesn't just happen. It happens because of systems and because of structures. Nothing just happens. It happens because of systems and because of structures. And that the structure that put racism at the center of American life was a three-legged stool. Uh, it was economic, it was political, and another way you could say it is religious, but I would say it is a double-minded church. You see, it was economic. Slavery was booming for business, like free labor would. If you want to start a business and you find out all your labor is free and when they have kids, they're also your labor and they're free, then there's no problem. I can keep the resources for myself. The other thing that was found, um, <clears throat> there are several books that kind of cover this, but an, an indentured servant um, versus a slave, a slave would pick two to three times as much cotton because the fear of death is a motivator for work, right? So essentially, slavery was great for business. You got paid. 
And so, and so <clears throat> a good healthy male slave could pick up to 600 uh, pounds of, of cotton, a female one, about 300. And so because of that, you, want, you generally wanted a male slave. That meant families got swapped out. In, in, in the late 1800s, once uh, the slaves were free, they had this thing called the Freedmen's Bureau. And the Freedmen's Bureau basically was people trying to find their families. There were, there were oftentimes they'd put in a, a newsletter, they'd put out, hey, my, you know, they'd put their name, say, hey, if you've seen my father, please let, um, you know, let, let them know I'm in Virginia. And they would have it read in black churches that people are trying to find their families. That was the intensity. Can you imagine the trauma of years and generations of not knowing where your mother is and then getting close to someone else only for them not to leave and move to a job, but to be sold? Imagine the trauma of generationally that happening. And, for, and, and meanwhile, you don't work a job, you're considered livestock. What does that do to the soul? What does that do to relationships? What does that do to the fracturing of the mind and the way in which you wake up every day? What does that do to a person? The psychological impact is astonishing when we think about it. But not only was it economic, it was political. 14 out of the first 18 presidents owned slaves. So that's why whether it was the three-fifths compromise, whether it was us, them, uh, the government ratifying new ways for slavery to continue, um, there, were, there were all these things called slave codes. These were all put in place to keep slavery there. So just like politics now, the economy is driven by the government and the government wants to keep the economy going so people can get rich. So, so politics undergirded all of that which was happening. But thirdly, the church. The church was so double-minded. It allowed this to be the case. You see, the church right now, when there's adultery, the church right now, when there's sex trafficking, the church right now, if there's abortion, the church right now, if there's, if there's uh, any kind of like money dealings, the church will yell and scream and pound the table. But this church was double-minded. George Whitfield. George Whitfield, dynamic preacher, argued. This was, this, was the, this was the argument. This was actually a, listen, this was a theological argument, like a debate. And the argument was, do black people have souls? And look, he came out on the good side. He said, Black people do have souls, but this is what the belief was. If black people have souls, therefore they can be evangelized. So that was his whole argument. We should evangelize our slaves. Meanwhile, while Whitfield was owning slaves, he also had an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia called Bethesda. And while he was owning slaves, it was illegal to, to buy them in Georgia but he would buy them in South Carolina. In other words, he was illegally buying them in a place and transporting them over, all the while preaching God's word, sweating, telling people, man, we need to evangelize the slaves. You see, it was double-mindedness the whole time. 
In addition to that, you had Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest American theologian. Sit in that just for a second. You know, all this stuff about affections and all that. It's amazing. Reformed people, love them. But what he did was he too believed that slaves could be evangelized, that slaves had souls. He argued for that. And Jonathan Edwards similarly envisioned a day in great theology uh, that one day that many slaves would come to faith and all nations, even slaves, could contribute to theology. But all the while, he owned slaves. Now, why did Jonathan Edwards keep slaves? Why did George Whitfield keep slaves? Why was it this, listen, why was it the standard church practice to either have slaves or not to speak to slavery? Because a, having a slave was a standard of economic privilege. In other words, when you, it wasn't like slave, black bodies were the equivalent of a Lexus. You understand what I'm saying? So, so again, it was economic power that trumped theological accuracy. Because having a slave meant I'm wealthy. And Jonathan Edwards wanted to keep up at the times. His church was a highly affluent church. Churches and denominations preached that slavery was a divine institution placed there by God. They did all this biblical gymnastics to find ways to say slavery was something that God agreed with. All the while, they couldn't find the type of slavery that they were doing in America. But as long as they saw the word slavery, the simple reading of the word slavery, slavery continued. They went to Genesis 9, and they saw this phrase, curse of Canaan, and, and, and it, they, they were able to logically consider that, that it was really a curse of Ham, and that was uh, a curse on black bodies. Saying essentially, without going into detail in that, saying essentially that black people are meant to be permanent laborers for white people. That was the curse. And this was preached. That was long ago. It was preached in the 1970s at Bob Jones University. That wasn't a long time ago. Now understand this. Why do I say double-minded? These slave masters or pastors, deacons, elders, these are the people you go to to learn about God. And understand this, they would have never tolerated sexual immorality within their church, but did not find it difficult to put a black woman and a black man together just to maintain the economic system. They would breed black folks together. You see, so there was, there is this double-mindedness. And when I get to the end of my messages, my message, I'm going to help you see it wasn't a blind spot. Oh, I love it when I hear that. Well, you know, everybody's got a blind spot. We're going to get to that later. But this is what's happening. This is preached. So slavery was taught, slavery was done, and slavery upheld the society. And so what then happened from 
leaders like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, what was produced was the black church. The black church wasn't people like, man, I don't like the way they clap in here, man. Let me go, go start my own church so we can funk it up. That, that's not what happened. Black people didn't want better music. The black church, the beginning of the black church started in Philadelphia. Shout out to Philly. It, um, the beginning of the black church started in, seven, in the 1790s. It was at St. George Methodist, and it was a man named Absalom Jones. And Absalom Jones, had he was a slave, and he gave his life to Christ, and he started ordination as a minister. And the Methodist church had been known to go against slaveholding, but not every church agreed with that. So you see, just because there were some abolitionists or there were some who were against slavery, the culture, the culture of the church was not only for slavery in terms of doctrine, it was, it, they had slaves in terms of application. See, that's how you really create a culture is when you believe something and you live it out. So, so this is what happens. Absalom Jones is in this church, he's a minister, but there was certain seating in the church that he was supposed to sit in. Well, one day he decides to come down front, get on his knees and pray. And while praying, they ask him to get up and they begin to prod. And one author says that while he, they're getting him up, he says, just give me one minute, I'll, I'll finish. And they start to get him up. And he says, just give me one minute, I, I'll finish. And they, they continue to get him. And once he gets up, he looks at the other black parishioners and he leaves. And in that moment, Absalom Jones and a man named Richard Allen would go on to start the first black church because they said, I rather be seen than tolerated. I want to be, I want to be experienced. I don't want seating over here. I want to be a full person. And if anything, if God says I'm equal, then I believe I'm equal. And he did, listen, he didn't just start a black church. He applied the Bible correctly. He left a group of heretics. See how it, it sounds different when you place it in theology, not just preference. So here they start the Bethel uh, African Methodist Church. As you move on in time, this is part of life. Slaves, black men being considered less. And so once we get to 1863 and all the degradation and pain that it took to get to the freeing of slaves in 1863, you have the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln brings it about. And so the, the slaves are free, 1863. And the interesting thing is in the vernacular of our society today, when people think of black pain, black degradation, black trauma, they immediately go to slavery. So the presumption is at, after 1863, it's all good. The slaves are freed. But the problem was that freeing the slaves did not fundamentally mean that slaves were the fr a free man was considered equal. Black men and women were free from slavery, but were never considered equal. They were free to live, but they weren't considered a man. They weren't considered a full woman. There, there is a way that society embeds in us a theology that we realize we don't have. We don't realize we have. Understand that only 100, 100 or so years before, 
there was what was called the three-fifths compromise. Essentially, what it, it was made for having a census and at, at, at the long run, there was a desire from the North that the South wouldn't have more people. If you counted slaves, the South would have more people than the North, which would give them an advantage. So the three-fifths compromise basically said that for every five slaves, that accounted for three white men. In other words, if you had 100 slaves in a room, that equal to 60 white men. The three-fifths compromise basically said a black man wasn't fully a man. He was three-fifths of a man. Now, you have to understand what that does in the mind when you don't count. Imagine if you walked in a room and you looked at a person and you don't say one. You understand how, how in-depth that is to the mind of white people? Not just the trauma that happened to black people, but the trauma that happened to white people. The psychology of seeing a person as lesser than. So you move on from 1865 to 1877. You have this attempt at reconstruction. Essentially what they're trying to do now is get everybody back together. The slaves are free. There was year after year different votes where now black people can vote. But along the way, there are all these different points at which even though black men were free, there were rules that were created for voting. There was oftentimes literacy tests where black people, if you couldn't read, Oftentimes there were poll taxes if black men would have to pay just to, to, poll, to, to be able to vote. So there were all these little micro laws put in place. But during the periods of 1865 to 1877, which was called the Reconstruction Era, a way to understand that is assimilation. During that time, the desire was that black folks would assimilate into the community. Well, it's in that moment between 1865 and 1877 that the freedom that black people had, they would excel. And they did. Black folks became politicians. Black folks started to enter into Congress. Black folks became mayors between 1865 and 1877. They built towns. They built banks between 1865 and 1877. Essentially, what was happening was they set black and brown people free and gave them a chance and attempted giving them land and giving opportunity from 1865 to 1877. But in 1877, President Ruther B. Hayes came into power. And in the 1877 compromise, essentially what happened was the reason why black men were able to roam free and operate in Congress was because the military was regulating the South. It was in that moment that Ruther B. Hayes came into presidential power that he said he will start this thing, listen, called states' rights. And essentially that was saying, you, you regulate your state how you want. So basically it's like racist, go be racist, right? And that's essentially what happened. At the point of 1877, lynching started happening in mass. Black men who were now, who were wanting their own land now had to become sharecroppers on the land of white men. There was death everywhere, terrorism in the land. And from that point, there was the creation of what was called Jim Crow. 
Now you have to understand when you say Jim Crow, Jim Crow were essentially black codes or there were laws put in place for, to keep black people down. But the, when you say Jim Crow, know that Jim Crow was a caricature. Uh, there was a guy um, in the early 1800s, about 1820s, and he played this guy, Jim Crow. And he would, he would say, yes, a boss, and oh, no, it's a boss, and it was a white man in blackface. And what he would do is he would show how silly and how foolish black people were. And so Jim Crow was this comedian, basically, that showed black people, showed how foolish black people were. That's who Jim Crow actually was, the, the, the caricature. So when they said Jim Crow laws, basically they were saying is, black people are a lesser people, so we have to create rules to keep them away from us. Jim Crow was essentially segregation laws. And these segregation laws were put in place all the way till 1965, treating black people lesser than. Black men were sent to war with no gun in World War II. Can you, can you, just, can you imagine that, being sent to war with no gun? You, you up there trying to fight people off and you ain't got a gun? They, they, they literally were put on tanks and the tank had no gunner at top. They were not allowed to handle ammunition and they still served. And after serving in the military and fighting for America, they had to fight America when they got back. Many black people would end up migrating to the North, migrate up to places like New York City, places like Brooklyn, only to find that just because you move from the South to the North doesn't mean racism doesn't exist. See, racism just adapts. And the adaptive nature of racism as it went to the North there in, in Brooklyn, you would have redlining begin to happen. This was a way to keep white people in certain communities, keeping their wealth in certain communities and not allowing black people to own land. This happened not only in Brooklyn, but all over the country. At that point in 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson signs what's called the Civil Rights Act. Once the Civil Rights Act is signed, that was a signal that the Jim Crow laws that were in place, the segregation laws that were in place, were no longer allowed in the South nor in the North. These laws were intended to change society. Once you move from there, you would hope that, man, maybe the hearts of people changed. But do you notice what I keep talking about? I keep talking about the government. Where was the church? Who was the pastor that was leading repentance racially for the church? Who was the pastor that said, hey, we've been doing wrong by black people? Who was the pastor that continued the move of racial repentance? Yes, you might find some abolitionists, but who was that pastor? From there, law and order. This is what Nixon would say in 1969, law and order. You see, from 1964 through 1969, there was a desire for black people to have equal rights. They wanted to be considered equal. And in so doing, white power still wanted 
to be in place. So Richard Nixon wouldn't use, uh, there's a guy named Lee Atwater, he, he would say basically, Richard Nixon wouldn't use words like the N-word, but they would begin to use a phrase, law and order. And this was a response to all the riots. It was a response to what they saw happening in cities. It was a response to the frustration that black Americans were having because they weren't considered equal. And so during that time, you would hear phrases like law and order, and you would hear things like the war on drugs. These, these phrases were embedded into society to tell white people, we will keep you safe from black people. Because you can go back to the 1800s and the 1700s to understand there was always a deep fear of black men by white men. It was because slavery was the power structure and there was always a belief that black men were stronger, more physically virile. So we have to be protected from them. So law and order was a way of coding language to say we will continue to keep the threats in the cities down. And underneath that was we will keep black people in check. That's why you saw an infiltration. You saw a growth. There were over 300,000 inmates in 1970. By 1980, that rose to 500,000. There was an increase in incarceration. And so these phrases of being tough on crime, war on drugs, they were all an assault on cities. Instead of having doctors, therapists, rehabilitation for people on drugs, there was a war on drugs. And so, you wonder what happened in between from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Well, that was kind of the dance now. The dance was the political wing would begin to talk about things like keeping the economy strong, keeping law and order, keeping the military strong. And in that time, by 2020, the United States having only 6% of the world's population, we incarcerate 25% of the world's incarcerated population. We continue to put people in prison, most of these people being black and brown. What happened was, instead of the white evangelical church repenting, the white evangelical church got in bed with the Republican Party. And, they, and, and instead of ever talking about race, listen, this is, this is what's crazy. White evangelicals would fight for their candidate, fight for their candidate and get all political. But whenever race is brought up, they say, I don't want to be political. So the reality is this comes, listen, this comes from an embedded doctrine. There are two contrasting visions of our faith. Two ways to believe. You can look at two different icons. You can look at Martin Luther King and you can look at Billy Graham. Martin Luther King, while responding to the riots in Watts after a black man was pulled over and ended up getting beat up by the police, which ensued a riot, Martin Luther King was asked about the riot and he said, actually it was a riot before the Watts riots. 
He said, I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. He, say, he would say that to Mike Wallace in a CBS interview. But Billy Graham, when he responded, listen, when Billy Graham responded to the Watts riots, he said, this kind of violence is used by those who, whose ultimate end is to overthrow the government. He went on to say, the nation needed tougher laws. Billy Graham, incredible guy, wonderful evangelist. But watch racism happen. You see, he did an incredible thing in New York City. He invited Martin Luther King to his rally and he asked that he would pray at his rally. He went as far as there used to be a rope in between black and white people. He took that rope down. And for Billy Graham, that was a quantum leap compared to his counterparts. But when Martin Luther King invited Billy Graham to his march, Billy said he doesn't want to get political. And that belief is still working today. Jerry Falwell would codify this with the moral majority. And with the moral majority, he now made religious thought and political thought in bed with one another. So much so that when you think, oftentimes when white evangelicals think of their faith, they think of it in a hyper-political way. So much so that they ignore the inequities in their community because that's a democratic thing or that's black people's problem. At core, at core, this construct that we've seen all the way from the 1600s to now has had great, great leaders and a great vision, but deeply embedded inside of it isn't just sanctification, it's suburbanism. It's a desire to be away from the bad people. And because that, because of that, because politics, that whenever race comes up, it's considered politics, this is why saying the phrase Black Lives Matter is so controversial. And it was on July 13th of 2013, Alicia Garza and her friend would pen the phrase Black Lives Matter because of the response to Trayvon Martin's death from George Zimmerman. And don't y'all remember we had to litigate? Well, black, well, all lives matter. Well, I mean, why do we, let's, let, man, let, and we had to like jostle like black, black well, I don't want to, why was that so hard? Why did we have to break dance, spin on our heads, sing a song, do all these things, have a kumbaya and a seance and revival just to say the phrase black lives matter? because white evangelicalism doesn't have a race problem, it has a theological problem. First Timothy four says it this way. Now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Racism and seeing a people group as lesser than their human existence is not just racist, it's demonic. And the inability for our culture 
to be able to say things simply like we should get involved when when a young black man dies, we should care about that. We should figure out what kind of systems are in place. The reason why the church has so much inaction there, it's, it's not simply because there's a lack of desire. There is a spirit working against it. It's demonic. Jonathan Edwards had a spiritual problem. George Whitfield had a spiritual problem. Billy Graham had a spiritual problem because when you cannot see people as human, that is, that is a work of the enemy. No, don't call it a blind spot. Call it demonic. The influence of the evil one kept people from being able to acknowledge the humanity of black people. And in addition, to see their situation and the same thing said now is what was said then. We've done enough. Black people have enough. The government will help. When did the church help? When did the church decide, hey, there, there's, a, there's a first Baptist black church over here and a first Baptist white church. We kick them out. Maybe we should do something with them. We want, y'all want racial reconciliation? How about all the white churches join the black churches? You see, we don't merely have racial structures of inequality. We have spiritual strongholds in the church. This is a stronghold. It's a stronghold. Whenever we get afraid to talk about race, that's a stronghold. When, when, you, when, you, when you can't even move past your political posture, that's a stronghold. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought that has been raised above the name of Christ is a stronghold in our society. Every time we're not able to admit that black lives are having a different life in America, every time we're not able to fight for black lives, you don't have a political problem. You have a spiritual problem. You need to repent of that spiritual problem. You've been dealing with demons for generations and you need to repent of that. It is theological. It is an enemy and we must must pull that stronghold down in order to see revival in our country. Don't play with demons. Don't play with evils. Repent of it. Every time you don't want to find yourself getting involved with black lives, there's a spiritual problem happening. And the only way to deal with a stronghold is through deep repentance. It's from unsubscribing from everything that would not allow you to love black lives, to see their bodies as valuable. Everything that might cause you, every TV station, every candidate that might cause you not to be able to see the value of black lives and the systems that are hurting a group of people, that's a stronghold. And so... I say to my white evangelical brothers and to those that are black and brown and you are listening to this, the time of hearing about sadness for the 60s and sadness for slavery, the confessions of wanting more diversity in the church, it's time to not just have confession, 
we need repentance. You see, because anyone that decides to confess of something and not repent is a hypocrite. And so what we need is turning. Turn from every ideology, tear down every stronghold in our society that has not valued black life because black lives matter to God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we thank you tonight. Raise up a voice in our cities, God. Raise up a shout in our cities. Raise up a value of people. Let us see people made in the image of God. God, there is doctrinal issues, not just perspectives. We have to start naming this as a spiritual problem. And we have to pull this spiritual problem down with the power of God. That's the only thing that's gonna change anything is the power of God. That's the only way that change is gonna happen is the power of God. So we call down, we do not just ask for a new president. We don't ask for a new legislature or a new Congress, a new Senate or new judges. We ask for the power of God to turn the church around and repent and then unleash us together. Unleash us together. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.